Turn in your Bibles, please, to a couple of passages of Scripture. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, the Bibles that are located in the pew, the black Bibles there, those are yours if you need one. So we encourage you, if you need a Bible, please, please take one. We want you to have a copy, a written copy of God's Word. The title of the sermon today is an ongoing series that God has me preaching to you right now. It's entitled Purpose, Mission, and Vision. And I've included this little statement because I want you to begin to think about the idea of what is God's dream for his church? What is God's dream for his church? I know when I think about the word dream, I think about that Martin Luther King speech. You familiar with that speech where he says, I have a dream, and then he shares? Well, I'm just wondering. I know that we have dreams about things, dreams about accomplishing things. Do you think God has a dream for his church? Do you think God has a dream for your life? That's what I sort of want us to look at as we're looking through this thing, as we talk about purpose mission and vision and we'll get to vision eventually as we start through the book of acts and look at how god gave his people a vision in the book of acts but i want to remind you we came through ephesians 1 and we talked about the idea of purpose what is a purpose and i define a purpose as the reason you exist the reason that you do something it is your why and and the purpose statement that if i were just to give us for right now would be this we exist and pursue our mission because, because of God's work in us, because of what he's called us to do. Because of God's work in us and what he's called us to do. Our purpose. It's why we're still here. It's why when you got saved, God didn't just shoot you up to heaven, but he left you here for a purpose. Because of what he's done for you and what he's called you to do. Then there's the mission of the church. There's the mission of the Christian and you can't, I don't believe you can separate the two. And, and here is how I'm expressing that mission. First, you're building it upon the foundation of who, beloved? You've got to build it on the foundation of Jesus. Paul said there's no other foundation that can be laid except the foundation of Jesus Christ. So you're building your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And in light of that, as the people of God, as the redeemed people of God, you're loving God. You're loving God. And in light of that also, you are also loving others. Loving others. You are serving all. It's like our Savior did. Serving all. And finally, the last piece of this, which is found in the Great Commission, is making disciples. And I believe this is deepening levels of commitment in a person's life, building their life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Loving God, loving others, serving all making disciples. That's the calling of you as an individual. It's the calling of us as a church. But I want to really dig down still a little bit and not go all the way to the foundation this time. But let's go to the idea of loving God. Loving God. And I want us to talk about that some today. I think I'm going to wind up preaching two messages on this because there's just so much. It was amazing as I began to dig down and look at what the scripture said about, and this is loving God as a redeemed people. This is loving God as a child of God, which is, is a special type of thing. So we're looking at these two passages that are almost word for word the same. One's found in the Old Testament, one's found in the New Testament, one's found in the book of Deuteronomy, one's found in the book of Mark. And so let's stand in honor of God's word. This is something we do every week when we're reading the word of God to give it honor and respect. We stand in honor of that word. This is called, the Hebrews call this the Shema, which means to hear. And hear means not just to let the sound waves bounce off your earwax, but 
So really pay attention. So here's what the Shema says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And then you turn over to Mark 12, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years later, and somebody asked Jesus, the scribes, the, the religious note-takers of the day, asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment? And here's what he said. He said, Jesus answered them. He said, the first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Would you pray with me? Father, just help me to faithfully preach your word. As your saved people, in light of the fact that you've redeemed us, in light that we have built our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, you call us to a life of love and worship, vertically grounded in you, walking in a worshipful relationship with you, not just on a Sunday. But Lord, if at all possible, and with the desire that we ought to have, walking every second every day in a devoted, loving, worshipful relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to get this under our skin and into our heads, and into our hearts, and into our lives, so that it might affect our daily life in such a way, Lord, that we will be better followers, and more faithful children, and better disciples. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to ask some questions today. There's four questions I'm going to ask as we look at this. And hopefully it'll help you to understand the idea of loving God a little bit better. It's very interesting. The book, when you're thinking about loving God in the Old Testament, there may be places that you think about and verses you think about. But did you know that love in the, in, in the New Testament, you may think of certain things. But as I was studying about love in the Old Testament, one of the most frequent books that love was talked in was Deuteronomy. Of all books, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Love was a big thing. It's an important thing. But let me answer these questions. I want to answer these questions sort of hopefully we'll be on the same page as I do. First, what is love? Love is not an emotion. I do not believe it is emotion. It has an emotional aspect to it. But it is not an emotion. Let me explain to you what I mean by that just a little bit. Let's say that love is a train. Was there a 60s song that came out called Love Train? Was that 70s? I'm not getting distracted, I know. But imagine a train, and imagine love as a train. It's got an engine, and it's got a caboose, and it's got cars in between. Can I tell you that emotion is a part of that, in that I believe it's probably the caboose, but it's definitely not the engine. It's not the dominant factor with regard to love. Here's why. Here's how I define an emotion. An emotion is a natural instinctive state that is affected by three things. It's affected by your circumstances or situations of life, or your mood, or 
relationships. You understand what I'm talking about by that? Circumstances come out in life, and they cause you to emotionally feel a particular way. Or you get in a particular mood, and some of you know what I'm talking about. You get in a particular mood, and that affects you emotionally. Or relationships go south, and that affects you. Or they go in a good direction, and it affects you emotionally. And generally, when we think about emotions, there's some basic emotions people hit on when they talk about emotion. And these are, this is the way I remember it. Uh, these are, it's like the four basic food groups, or the four basic emotions are mad, sad, glad, and scared. Now, we understand that there's a lot more than that, but you can fit a lot of emotion into those four areas. For instance, when I'm frustrated, I'm a little mad. When I'm disappointed, I'm a little sad. When I'm anxious, I'm a little scared. It all play, when I'm terrified, I'm a lot scared. Now, there's some others who have said that surprise is one is one, tenderness is one. But when I've looked and tried to understand emotion, I do not believe that love is an emotion. And here's why. Emotions can change, can they not? Depending upon our circumstances, depending upon our mood, depending on upon our relationships, but the love that the Bible is talking about remains faithful whether our circumstances are beneficial or detrimental. Whether your circumstances change or not, love remains. Whether you're in the mood or not, love remains. Whether you're in a right situation or a wrong situation with relationships, Love remains. And let me give you another example, drawing from God himself and Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Calvary. Go back to Calvary was the name of the hill upon which Jesus died, in which God, who came in the form of flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung on a cross and died. Now, I just want you to think about him hanging willfully, willingly on that cross and dying. And being beaten to the point of almost dying from the loss of blood, being publicly humiliated in front of people, being mocked and accused by people out front. Yet he hung on the cross, and he died, dying from one of the most gruesome deaths possible. Let me ask you something. Do you think he was feeling it then? You think he was feeling the love? Yes or no? No. But can I tell you this? He was loving. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us there is no greater act of love that is recorded in all of history than what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Romans 5.8 said that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that we were, while we were yet sinners, that means we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Now, if it had been emotional and Jesus hadn't felt like it, he might not have done it. But I am so glad it was in spite of how he might have felt on the cross that he loved me. Aren't you? Amen? So, so to look at love primarily as emotional is a dangerous place to be. I mean, I'm glad God was, it wasn't a matter of him being in the mood to save us because he loves us with an everlasting love. And it wasn't a matter of his relationship with us because when he died for us, we weren't his friends. We were his enemies. The fact is, is that love is not an emotion. It is so much bigger and better. And it is a choice you make based upon the command God has given you. Remember, this is the first, not suggestion, this is the first commandment. 
And that implies a choice. It is a decision wrapped in conviction, rooted in devotion. It has affection to it. It's obeyable, but only when we see the love of God toward us can we faithfully obey. Does that help you understand a little bit better what love is? Because I'm afraid in the world in which we live today, with our love definitions floating around, we've lost biblical love. We've lost the depth, the power, the strength of biblical love. Because biblical love doesn't bail. Because God doesn't bail. Biblical love is faithful not because of the other person. Biblical love is faithful in spite of the other person. That's biblical love. It's not an emotion. That's what love is. So here's the second question. Why do we love God? Simply because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. The Deuteronomy 6 passage where he gives the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. There's a reason that they're able to do that. And you find it in Deuteronomy 7, the very next verse over. Listen to what God says to Israel. Listen to what he says. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Listen, here's the love. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people. For you are the least of all peoples. Here's why he chose them. But because the Lord loves you, because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. He redeemed you. That's one of the purposes we looked at in Ephesians 1 for the church. We're a redeemed people. We are, we are purchased back from spiritual slavery by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed. I redeemed you. God delivered Israel from Egypt because of his promise to Abraham, but more than that, he did it because he loved them. He loved them. And beloved, God still delivers out of his love today. Amen? He still delivers out of his love. John 3.16, God is the initiator there. Is he not? You know John 3.16? I think most of us have at least heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God taking the initiative. That's God in his great love, loving us first. And we're told in the book of 1 John, near the end of the Bible, John simply says this in his little letter. He says, we love him because he first loved us. And he loves you. The Bible says he loves you with an everlasting love. That means even before creation got started and when creation is gone, he will still love you. And God can't love you any more than he loves you right now because he loves you with his everything. I mean, parents, you think about it. What would it take for you to give your only beloved child for your enemies? What would it take for you to do that? Yet God does it. 
It's his love for us that we realize and receive in our lives that brings his love into our lives. There's a great story told in Luke chapter 7. It starts in about verse 40. You can read it later, but it's a story. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. It's a story of a, a party that Jesus is at, and Simon is the guy who's having the party. This isn't Simon Peter. It's a different Simon. He's invited Jesus to come in. He's, he's giving him a party. And then this woman, out of nowhere, comes into the house, and this woman has a really bad reputation, and this woman comes in, and she begins to do this very undignified stuff, stuff that if they, somebody came into your house uninvited and did it, you'd probably freak out. She took her hair. She began to cry on Jesus' feet. She started to wipe his feet with her hair and the tears. She put oil on his feet. She began to kiss his feet. And all this is going on. And Simon sort of says to himself, man, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be doing this. And then this is what Jesus says. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, teacher, say it. A certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Now, I'm going to make a jump here, but I believe it's true. He did it, forgave them out of love. Tell me, therefore, which one will love him more? Simon said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. By the way, 500 denarii is 500 days wages. So just do the math on that. In our, in our world, that could be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And then he said to Simon, you're right. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You, you didn't give me a kiss, and that was something they'd do, kiss on the cheek when they greeted one another back then. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with a fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, when you take that parable with the story of Jesus telling in the real-life account, there's two things I want you to see. First, I want you to listen. Because of God's love for you, he paid for your sins on the cross. Your sins are forgiven today. Isn't that good news? Your sins are forgiven today. Amen. Amen. Okay? We need to get to the point where we start clapping about that. Do we not? He took care of it on the cross. Because of that, you ought to love him. And you ought to live a certain way. Shouldn't you? And then as you do, it deepens the relationship even more because Jesus even gives her forgiveness on the other end. Because here's the deal, even as a believer, 1 John 1, 9 speaks of this. And the book of 1 John was written to believers who had been forgiven but then John says to those who are struggling with sin, and this is a word to all of us as believers who want to love God but still struggle with sin, which I bet is everybody here. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, I thought he forgave us at the cross. He did. 
But we still sin, don't we? We still need to come before him from a relationship point of view, from a loving point of view. And when we know we're not right with God, we ought to confess that. God says, when you do that, I'll forgive that. Loving God. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. Do you realize the love God has for you? Are you reflecting on the love God has for you? And is it affecting your life? I mean, are you willing to do the undignified in the world's eyes to show your love for God? Number three. That's what love is. It's not an emotion. Number two, why do we love him? Because he first loved us. Number three, how do we love God? Well, the passage tells us, with our all. With our all. There are four words that are used in these two passages. Three are used in the the Old Testament passage, which was written in Hebrew. In the New Testament passage, which is written in the Greek language, some of the words are going to sound familiar to you because... The Greek language has some familiarity with ours, but the Hebrew word and the Greek word, the Greek word is for heart, you're going to love him with your heart, is the word cardio. How many of you have been to the doctor and he's told you you need to get some cardio? I don't want to know. I need some cardio as well. That means you're going to work on what? The strength of your heart. Cardio. But here's what the idea of the heart entailed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is all that it covered. It covered in the Old Testament, it covered your intellect and your wisdom. It covered your discernment. It also covered your emotions. And please understand what I'm saying here. Emotions are not wrong. They just need their right place. You ought to love God with your emotions, shouldn't you? The heart in the New Testament was the idea of the center of your human life. It was the choice center. It's where you made your choices. It had to do with the mind. It had to do with the character. It had to do with the inner self. The will, your intentions, and all of that is wrapped up in your heart. Your heart. You're to love him with all your heart. And then there's the all your soul. All your soul. The Old Testament word. And then the New Testament word is suke. It's the word we get psychology. Or maybe you'd rather use the word psycho. We get both of those from suke. But it's the idea of the mind. But it's more than just the mind. It's the whole person. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament word had the idea of the throat. Now, have you ever thought about how important your throat is? You've got a carotid artery, you've got your esophagus and your windpipe running through your throat. If your throat was ever separated from your body, you would be in a bind, wouldn't you? It's important. And the whole idea of the soul has to do with personal identity. It has to do with who you are as a person, as a whole. As a matter of fact, we even refer to it today, if there's a there's an airplane that crashes we say 40 souls were lost it's the idea of your personal identity it's the idea of the breadth of your life the the seat of your affections and your will then there's the mind and jesus uses mind but the old testament writer didn't so jesus probably wanted to point out the importance of loving god with your mind that's your understanding that's your intellect that's your insight We use our minds as instruments to understand God, and we ought to develop our intellect to God's glory and gain insight about God and for God as well. When I was praying about going to seminary and working on my doctoral degree, and I was struggling with that, God very clearly spoke to me and said, John, I've called you to love me with your mind. 
called you to love me with your mind. Our minds get so messed up in this world, don't they? So much junk floating around that can flow through our minds. We need to love God with our minds, don't we? Love God with our minds. And then all of our strength. The Hebrew word's very interesting because it literally means very, very, or much. It's your muchness. It's your intensity. Love him with intensity. Love him. And, and when it's translated over into the Greek, it's the word dunamos, by which we get the word dynamo, the word dynamite. You understand the idea. It's power. It's strength. Love him with your strength. There's some old translations that also say love him with your resources. Because back then, the idea of having strength was having resources. So love him with your stuff. Now, you're probably listening to these, and you're going, well, Brother John, some of these just sort of, they say the same thing in different ways. I mean, in our Western world, we want it all divided, and we want it in four little separate groups, and we want to know that everything's being covered. But let me tell you what I believe is going on here that's very, very important. There's a potential, there's a... There's an intentional overlap, an intentional overlap of these four for a very important reason. There are to be, here it is, there are to be no gaps in your love for God. No gaps. Because here's the, here's the thing that I would do as a human and you would too. God would tell us how to love him and we'd go, well, he said A, B, and C, but he didn't say D. So maybe I don't have to do D. Because we do tend to shoot for what we can get away with. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh, that's not how it's going to be. You love me with my, your all and then some. It is an overlap here. There's no gaps in your love for God. You are to love him with everything. He's not just to be a part of your life. Beloved, he is your life. How do you love him? With your all. And a little bit more. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. This is sort of where the rubber meets the road. What does loving God look like for us? I believe at its core is the idea of worship. Now, I do believe love and worship have to go together. And if you love God truly, you will worship him. But there are times we can go through the acts of worship and not love God. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke of that when he says... These people honor me with their lips. Do, you, do anybody remember the rest of that? But their hearts are far from me. So you can go through the motions of worship, personal or corporate. And these are two areas I just want to touch on. But it not be real worship because it doesn't have love. I think it can't be worship without love. So personally, personally, you as a person... How are you worshiping God? Let me just ask you, what's your time with God like? I, just you. You and God, close the door by yourself with him, whatever. What's your time with God like? Do you think that he wants to spend time with you personally? Do you? He must because he, he died for you. Okay, He loves you with an everlasting love. So what's your time like? Are you carving out time for him? Or are you just, is he getting the leftovers? See, this worship thing, this loving God thing is a big deal. Are we loving God as we should? What about your time in God's word? Are you spending more time in God's word? You know, we will spend, most people say, uh, we will spend over eight hours a day on technology. How much time are we spending of that 
loving God? Are we loving God with our technology? Personally. And here's why personally is so important. Listen to me. Because if you're not taking care of what's going on personally, when we get together corporately, the corporate will not fix the personal. You hear what I'm saying? Some people come to church with the mindset that, well, we'll worship corporately, and I'll fill up for the rest of the week, and then I'll be fine till next Sunday. No, that's not how this thing works. You cannot get filled up in one hour. What you need for the rest of the week, you need to be doing it every day. It's got to be a part of your life so that when you come to these times, you and your life are overflowing as a group, and then our worship becomes something bigger than just the sum of all of us together. It becomes a supernatural event. When God's people, who've been spending time with God during the week, in loving God, come together and love Him together. Imagine what that's like. Loving God is worship at its core. So I want to leave you with this final question. Are you loving God like you should? Only you and God know that. Only you and Him are there in the quiet times and the private times, but I'm here to tell you, if you'll meet Him in secret, He'll show up in public. If you meet Him privately, He'll show up publicly. If you meet Him personally, He'll show up corporately, but you've got to make the commitment to Him to do it individually. Are you loving Him and worshiping Him like you should? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Where are you? Where are you in your relationship to the Lord? I want you to think about that. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I mean, you don't know where I am. We can all put on a show, can't we? We can all fake it. Just can't fake it with God. So if God were to bear witness to where you are with him, what would he say? Are you loving him? And is he feeling, is he experiencing, is he seeing the love that you're giving to him? Are you loving God according to God? You cannot begin to grow in this Christian life if you leave that aside. You can't step into whatever you think you want to do in church life or how you want to relate to others if you're not doing what you need to do there. And it's so incredibly essential. You and God are close. Y'all are in a relationship with one another. You've built your life as a believer on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now what? Getting saved and not walking with God daily and seeking that is like getting married and never seeing your spouse again. A wedding does not make a marriage because a marriage is a relationship. Salvation is a relationship too. It's a relationship between you and the God of the universe. In just a moment, we're going to have a time invitation and during that time you can respond in a lot of different ways you can stay in your seat and you can pray in your seat and if God tells you to do that that's perfectly fine but if you need to nail down some things a little bit better I'll be down front to pray with you you 
come to this altar and kneel at this altar and pray. Just talk to the Lord. Just confess what you're dealing with to Him. Maybe God's dealing with you about salvation. Maybe you need to make a public statement to a bunch of believers saying, I am following Jesus now. I don't know what God has for you. If you want to know about becoming a member of the church, I'd be glad to talk with you about that. But I just want to lead us in prayer. And after the prayer, we'll stand quietly and you respond as God leads. So let's pray. Father, I'm amazed at your love. I'm amazed at your love. It's an amazing thing that you would be so brutalized for no personal benefit in that you simply want a relationship with us and you're willing to do what it takes. Father, we all need forgiveness. We all need salvation. We all need that relationship with you. So God, speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. You stand